Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. We are on a responsible fiscal path. On the program, the Canadian economy sees a surprise surge in job creation, but the news heightens worries about inflation and virtually guarantees more interest rate hikes. We'll hear from two economists. Saskatchewan's Justice Minister talks about legislation to change that province's constitution and fight what she calls Ottawa's harmful economic policies. If that was happening in your community, in your front lawn, would that be okay with you? I'd probably join in, yes. And our journalist panel weighs in on the latest at the Emergencies Act inquiry and Christian Freeland's economic update. But we start with the Prime Minister and the Finance Minister, Christian Freeland, in Toronto on Friday, talking up the measures in Thursday's economic update. We are on a responsible fiscal path. We are in strong positions to be able to help Canadians now, to help them if we need more help in the coming months, and with investments in things like clean hydrogen and more uh, clean tech, build opportunities long into the future that will keep us uh, as one of the uh, highest rated economies uh, in the world. Statistics Canada has just released the latest unemployment figures for October, and they show a jump in job creation, 108,000 new jobs in October, 10 times what many economists had expected. But ironically, the good news is fueling fears that the economy is overheating, that inflation has become entrenched, and that, as most observers say, Canada is heading into a recession. To look at it all, I'm joined by Pedro Antunes. He is the chief economist at the Conference Board of Canada, and Jim Stanford, who is an economist and the director of the Centre for the Future of Work. Both of you, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Martin. Okay, let's start with it. I mean, I, I think a lot of Canadians are trying to get their head around the fact that we have historically low unemployment figures, including this surge in unemployment creation this month, and yet it, it spells potentially bad news in terms of uh, inflation and higher interest rates. Pedro Antunes, uh, start us out by explaining to the average Canadian what that means. Yeah, well, essentially what we're facing, I think, is uh, very much a supply-constrained economy. You know, we keep hearing from the bank and, and from federal finance as well, the Bank Canada, that is, uh, that we're above capacity. And when we say that, I really think we're above capacity in terms of the labor market. Uh, if you talk to many employers uh, in Canada today, they're desperately looking for uh, workers because they can't satisfy the, de- the de- demand that's out there for their product. Uh, so I don't think it's bad news necessarily that we've seen job creation. Yeah. Uh, but what I'm suggesting is that a very tight labor market with the unemployment rate in Canada at record lows, uh, that is a sign that uh, essentially we can start to see inflationary pressures come up. And it's not so much that we don't want to see wages uh, catch up with inflation, and that is happening. In fact, in some provinces, wages have outpaced inflation. Uh, That's not necessarily bad news on its own. The problem is, if those wage increases aren't, uh, you know, aren't reflected in productivity, then they just end up, uh, you know, with uh, uh, with another round of price increases from from employers, and we end up back into the 1980s uh, with uh, a spiral of inflation. So this is the challenge that uh, I think monetary authorities are facing today. Okay, Jen Stanford, what do you make of it? I mean, that the suggestion is that this uh, very very low 
unemployment rates uh, are going to fuel the central bank's intent to continue to hike inflation rates. And we're seeing the result that we're, we're heading into a recession caused by the, the, the monetary uh, policy. Well, at least the good news, Martin, today was that clear recession clearly hasn't started yet. Yeah. Uh, and I was worried that it had. But uh, wow, 100,000 new jobs is a sign that we've still got some momentum. And I am still of the old school that the more people are out there working, producing, generating income, paying taxes, that is good news. And the only reason people think it's bad news uh, is because we've somehow been sucked into this upside down idea that uh, Canadians have too much work. Uh, this is the underlying assumption of the Bank of Canada's argument that the labor market is overheated. I absolutely reject that. We still have 5.2% unemployment. That's about where it was in 2019 before the pandemic, and we didn't have a wage price spiral in 2019. Wages are growing in nominal terms at around 5%. It's a, bit, a little bit less than that when you adjust for quality and composition, more like 4%. And that is still way behind uh, consumer price uh, inflation. So real wages, the actual cost of labor in economic terms is falling, okay. not rising. So all of this suggests we've still got room to grow. Uh, it's only someone who's unduly focused on wages and workers as the source of inflation, which I don't think describes what's happened, who could see this possibly as bad news. Okay, well then a question though, in a, in a word to both of you and each of you, uh, the Bank of Canada Governor, uh, Tiff Macklem, has said that he, he counts on, plural, more uh, interest rate hikes coming up. Uh, are we headed inevitably, though, to, an, uh, to a recession? Pedro, uh, Pedro Antunes. Well, I think, you know, if you look at most of the forecasts that are out there right now, they're essentially calling for a very similar scenario, whether they define it as a recession or not. Uh, what we're looking at for most forecasters, including, you know, what the Bank of Canada put out just recently and what we saw from uh, the economic update yesterday, it's essentially flat growth for two or three quarters. Some forecasters have a couple of minor declines in there. That means uh, technical recession for some. Okay. In my view, uh, you know, these aren't recessions. These are essentially uh, the successful monetary policy scenario where for all of those forecasts, what you see is the economy slows down, uh, inflation starts to come down. And by the time we get to 2024, uh, and by the way, that includes our own forecast at the conference board. Uh, okay. But by the time we get to 2024, inflation is back in check in that two to three percent range. Uh, I think the risk, however, is that we do see uh, inflationary pressures continue and that could be internal. We you know, I, I, I certainly see Jim's point, but I, I do think that uh, if wages continue to catch up with inflation, we will get into this okay. spiral where it's very hard to beat back uh, domestic inflationary pressures. But that's one issue. Of course, there's the geopolitics too, and we could very easily end up with another yeah. round of commodity price uh, shocks here. So any of these things could trigger a tougher stance or a tougher time for monetary authorities to okay. bring down inflation higher interest rates were extremely leveraged in this country uh, lots of debt for households uh, and that would could spell a much harder landing i think further down the road okay jim stanford uh rightly or wrongly uh in terms of the bank of canada's uh, hiking of interest rates uh, do you think we are inevitably headed for a recession if you want to call it that or not and i'd like to get your reflections on what was in the economic update and whether they the measures for example for giving student uh, student uh, interest on loans uh and this expansion of the workers' benefit, the Canada workers' benefit, whether they, they will come as any help. Are we going to be in a recession in a word? Uh, and the measures we saw in the economic update. 
We will be in a recession uh, next year. Uh, I'm surprised by today's news and gladdened by it, but uh, the overall trend is still very negative, yeah. not just from our own interest rates, but from those around the world and the other adjustments uh, from the pandemic and the okay. shock. So I think that is a, a given. In terms of the fiscal and economic statement, uh, it was, uh, in I think, uh, quite cautious and quite conservative. There is this idea that the government is still throwing money around because they have a deficit. Uh, not so. In fact, uh, program spending from the government has fallen very sharply over the last two years including in the current uh, fiscal year, and future increases are not even going to keep up with population growth and uh, inflation. So the measures that were there that uh, workers benefit, for example, for low-income workers, good ideas, targeted, uh, but I think we're going to need more of that uh, if and when the economy does go into a recession. Okay, Pedro Antunez, we only have a few seconds left. Uh, your reaction to the measures that were announced by uh, Minister Freeland yesterday, specifically those targeted measures on the uh, student loans, on workers' benefits, uh, uh, and, uh, well, on those two major uh, points. Yeah, no, I, I would agree. Uh, you know, you, we are trying to ease the pain on those that suffer more from most from inflation, and I think those measures were targeted and, and relatively light, so not adding to that problem that the uh, Bank of Canada is trying to fight, uh, you know, too much uh, stimulus or too much uh, fervor in the economy, if you'd like. Uh, I, I'd also like to point out that there was uh, what I would suggest very few measures in terms of stimulating the other part of the economy, which is private investment, uh, and I think we need to do more on that front as well. Okay, both of you, thank you very much. We will no doubt have a chance to speak again as we monitor this and as we watch the trends. Thanks, uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Mark. Well, speaking of the economy, a word about a labor dispute in Ontario. On Friday, an estimated 55,000 education workers went out on strike, closing hundreds of schools around the province. At issue is wages. Their union says the average salary of the educational assistance is $39,000 a year. Their legal strike was declared illegal by legislation passed this week by Premier Doug Ford's government. He has also invoked the Constitution's notwithstanding clause to protect the legislation from a court challenge. The Ford government argues that Ontario parents should not have their children's school interrupted by the job action. And it says the exceptional back-to-work legislation, it says, is justified. Canada's federal, provincial and territorial health ministers are meeting in Vancouver this weekend. Their much-anticipated meeting comes as healthcare systems across the country are in what's commonly referred to as a crisis, especially faced with acute staffing shortages and burnout. For several years now, the premiers have been calling for a first minister's summit with the prime minister to discuss increased transfer payments, and their calls haven't been answered. Instead, it will be up to the health ministers this weekend to talk. Joining me now is Stephen Staples. He's the director of policy and advocacy at the Canadian Health Coalition. Stephen Staples, thanks for joining us. Hi, Martin. Uh, I, I set the scene a bit. I mean, we have had many years of promised meetings of the first, uh, first ministers, and we're still awaiting that. What are you expecting this weekend out of the health uh, ministers meeting? No, not very much, I'm afraid. This is a really low-key meeting. Uh, there has not been a lot of attention focused on it. It's not a meeting of the premiers, like we saw last summer. It's a meeting of the health ministers. But we're looking for any, any sign that there's a thawing or any conversation between the federal government and the provincial governments to move forward on some of the critical issues that are facing our healthcare system right now. But at this point, it looks like despite some ads being run by the premiers calling for more money from the federal government, um, it's going straight to voicemail. The answer is the same, uh, not much happening. So you don't have any great expectations for this particular meeting at a ministerial level? 
Uh, I don't think so. I don't. I don't expect uh, a lot of change uh, coming from uh, from the standoff that we've seen. The provinces seem intent on calling for more federal transfers uh, to to cover health care costs. Uh, the federal government has not been signaling that they're prepared to do it. We just had a fiscal update that had uh, very little in it in terms of uh, uh, attention to health care. Uh, the problem is the federal government wants to see some outcomes. They want to know where the money is going to go. And the province's answer has just been, butt out, write us the check, and we'll decide how to spend it. And that, that's the nub of the problem. Okay, well, that brings up then something that's been much talked about since last week. Uh, the week before, Friday before last week, there was a leak to a uh, Toronto Star journalist, uh, columnist, Althea Raj. The leak from federal sources was suggesting that Ottawa might be ready to deal separately with the provinces. This is something that the, uh, the Premier see as a divide-and-conquer strategy, but it was exactly what was done in 2016 uh, with Justin Trudeau, Bill Morneau, and Jane Philpott when she was health minister. Do you think that's where we're going, that this is going to be a an impasse and B, it'll only be broken when the federal government starts to deal with one province at a time. Well, there, it very well could be. They're, they're definitely looking for some kind of strategy. I, I think the days of big health accords may be behind us. The future could be bilateral discussions like we saw in childcare with the federal government going from province to province to make deals. There's another possibility too, the dental benefit that was negotiated at the behest of the NDP uh, is that that program is going ahead without the provinces at all. That's just going to be a federal insurance program to cover for dental care. Now, coming down the pike, Martin, is PharmaCare. That's also promised under the deal. That's going to be tougher to do without cooperation from the provinces. But what we're hearing is there are some provinces that are probably willing to go ahead with a new PharmaCare program. Mm -hmm. Others are not. So the federal government could be setting the stage for individual negotiations with those provinces that are willing to put some strings attached to the funding and deliver better outcomes and programs for Canadians. Okay, Stephen Staples, thank you very much. We will keep in contact and we will watch this, obviously, on a topic which is so important and so close to most Canadians' hearts. Thanks a lot. Nice to be here. This week, the Saskatchewan government introduced the Saskatchewan First Act. That's legislation aimed at changing the province's constitution and, according to the government, protecting the province's economy from harmful federal policies. Justice Minister Bronwyn Eyre tabled the legislation and she joins me now from Regina. First of all, Minister Eyre, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Now, uh, the question is succinctly, because this can get quite complex, but succinctly and concretely, what would the Saskatchewan First Act do? Well, we are unilaterally amending our uh, provincial constitution um, as we are able to do under Section 45 um, of the Constitution Act um, and thereby asserting uh, exclusive jurisdiction um, under 92A of the Constitution over natural resources and that which is exclusive jurisdiction. And, and bear in mind, this is not an amendment to the federal constitution. It's an amendment to the Constitution Act okay. 1867, the provincial part of that, and our own Saskatchewan constitution. Okay, now since your announcement, I've been looking at some of the reaction from constitutional scholars, uh, and they've been saying that, and you mentioned it, 
these powers, for example, over non-renewable resources, their development and exploitation, electricity generation, regulation of provincial industries, you just mentioned, they're specifically spelled out in Section 92 and 93 of the Canadian Constitution. Why do you need this act? We need it to assert and embed within a provincial constitution, the provincial constitution um, the, the core powers, and that is a, a legal constitutional term, the core powers, the interjurisdictional immunity, another constitutional term of those exclusive powers, exclusive, and that was a, a term that was not lightly arrived on, exclusive powers under section 92. They exist already, but the infringements that we are seeing over and over uh, by the federal government into exclusively provincial jurisdiction um, it is, it has, has, has increased certainly over the last number of years. And we feel that it has constitutional weight to amend the provincial constitution that's not done lightly and is really very, very rare. And we feel that in, in stipulating interjurisdictional immunity, in stipulating and enumerating core powers, and really in trumpeting to the country and to the federal government and to the courts, uh, that there are exclusive federal powers and there are exclusive okay. provincial powers is okay. important. To be concrete, I mean, let's look at you. I mean, you were energy minister, I believe, when Saskatchewan, when your government uh, was party to the court case that went all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada, and that was about the government's uh, carbon pricing scheme. The Supreme Court made very quick work of that and said the Trudeau government had uh, federal jurisdiction over the environment and protection of the environment. Would something like this in any but way change that ruling from the Supreme Court of Canada? Sorry to interrupt. I was going to say in that case, of course, and, and you're right, um, there, there, that was dealt with, but it was dealt with through peace, order and good government, okay. or POG, which really was a federal trump card on provincial jurisdiction. We've also seen, however, with the Bill C-69 case in Alberta, um, that the, the wording and the holding by the Court of Appeal there was that the federal government had taken a quote-unquote wrecking ball to exclusive jurisdiction uh, under 92A. So this is by no means resolved. POG was, as I say, a nuclear option, but, but the, the jurisdictional issue about federal and provincial jurisdiction is, is very much laid out in the Constitution, okay. and we feel that it is important to formally amend and embed it in okay. ours. So that, be that, that begs the big question then. The bottom line is, A, uh, you're saying that you think that this might give you a better chance in both cases like that, like Bill 69 and the carbon pricing. Uh, do you think then, does this lay the way for trying to re-litigate any of that legislation? Can you and would you? Well, everything Everything is on is on the table. I mean, we have a number. It's not only the carbon tax. I mean, let's keep in mind we have a number of existentially harmful um, federal pieces of legislation, proposed legislation, regulation uh, coming down the line. Uh, the clean electricity regulations. No fossil fuel generated power by 2035. That would effectively turn off the lights in Saskatchewan. Sask Power has said it is literally impossible to transition that quickly. Uh, the Queen Elizabeth Power Station just down the road here. Um, in Saskatoon could powers the city uh, with natural gas. Uh, so that is an existential uh, problem and an economic harm. The federal fuel standard, $700 million a year uh, for diesel consumption, gas consumption, the province of Saskatchewan set to come into play next year. Carbon tax number two, again, retail sector, rail, ag, naturally just fueling your car and, and power and, and gassing up your, your home. Um, there are massive issues with that legislation. So it, 
we really see, you have to see this from Saskatchewan's perspective against a backdrop of, of cumulative economic harm and potential economic harm in the future. And that is why in, in the bill, we are putting in place an independent economic tribunal, which will quantify the dollars and cents of these policies. And, and potentially then the idea could be that we could use that evidence um, as admissible um, or, for example, in the case of a reference to the Court of Appeal, um, an interlocutory injunction, it needs um, one of the tests for an interlocutory injunction is irreparable harm. And that's why we okay. feel that it is important to quantify and define and assess the economic harm of some of these policies on, on Saskatchewan. And, and keep in mind, this is economic okay. harm being perpetrated on just one region of the country. All right. Well, Minister Ayer, we will watch this with great interest. I want to thank you for uh, speaking with us today. You're welcome. Thank you so much. Joining me now to look a week at the week in federal politics are two members of the Parliamentary Press Gallery, Ian Bailey of the Globe and Mail and Tonda McCharles of the Toronto Star. First of all, both of you, thanks for joining us. Pleasure. Hi, Martin. Now, Tonda, you are at the site of the inquiry, the uh, Emergencies Act inquiry, and we're going to get to that subject first uh, in a minute. But first, let's talk about the economy, which is very much on everyone's mind, a looming recession. I want to start with the economic update from Christian Freeland. Ian, you were at the lockup. You've been watching it in detail. What stood out for you in her, uh, in her update and in the economy in general? Well, I was struck by um, Minister Freeland kind of acknowledging tough times ahead, economic challenges looming, and the government sort of uh, weighing in and doing its best to provide some assistance. Um, clearly, inflation is a, a key topic these days. It's a political challenge for the government. The new Conservative leader is, uh, and the NDP leader, are pushing the government very hard on this. And so the minister had some measures on, uh, on uh, federal student and apprentice loans, um, and other measures to sort of help Canadians. Not a lot, but but some measures. But she was very candid about the challenges uh, that Canada faces. She held out the possibility of eventual return to a, a surplus. And this budget struck me, or this budget, this statement struck me as kind of a bridge to give the okay. government something uh, defensive, uh, something to talk about on the inflation file, pending a budget, obviously, next year. So this, those were a few of the things that, that came out and struck me in it. Okay, a quick question on that, is on that same note. You mentioned that she acknowledged that the, the things could potentially get much worse. We're talking about the possibility of a recession. Uh, Ian, just to, to dwell on that, how much do you think that this whole exercise could be quite outdated uh, by what could happen in the next uh, nine months, which is uh, what the Bank of Canada is predicting in terms of no, no growth? Well, you know, this buys the government time for now, and it's, you know, as the minister said, it's hard to predict how things are going to play out, how things are going to turn. So we'll have to see how this is, this rolls out. But for now, I guess this gives the government some, buys them some time, uh, depending how things turn out in the coming months. Okay. Tonda, watching the, watching the economic update and the economic indicators that we've been watching, what do you make of it all? Well, look, I think the pivot, the political pivot in the messaging of the government is interesting, right? They're, they're really, I think, trying to make Canadians to get ready for a much uh, more difficult period ahead. And that's not, no government likes to talk about bad times ahead, and they always like to downplay that. Um, you know, she's not Mary Poppins. I mean, the spoonful of sugar that went with that medicine yesterday wasn't a whole lot. It was very targeted relief. Um, but I was also interested overall in the fact that this government is trying somehow to uh, sort of kickstart Canadian companies and the economy here in terms of that green transition. 
position and also to try and uh, up its competitiveness with American companies and the American fiscal picture. I, I, it seems that, you know, they're really feeling the heat and the pressure south of the border for the Canadian economy and the ability of uh, our industries to compete with all the incentives that are being brought south of the border. Okay. And now, Tonda, I mentioned you were at the site of the inquiry, the Emergencies Act inquiry. All week long, we have been hearing, well, most of the week, we've been hearing uh, from key organizers and spokespersons of the occupation of downtown Ottawa. What stands out for you in the testimony we've been watching this week? Well, a few things. Um, we've heard all week long about the factions and the uh, divisions and the power struggles within various groups at the convoy. That was uh, underlined over and over again. In a way to downplay that this was some kind of um, monolithic group that could have been negotiated with. But also on the convoy side, for them to promote it as an organic, peaceful, peace-loving um, event that didn't harm anybody and that was really whatever harms Ottawa experienced were exaggerated. So that stood out for me. What also really is standing out for me though now after almost a week of this, well, I, I guess we have you know still a long day ahead of testimony, but in this, because I'm speaking to you just before that, yeah. um, the, the, I, I think what stands out is also the leeway that the judge and the inquiry and the commission counsel are giving the convoy uh, organizers and participants. Leeway that was not given to Ottawa residents and business, businesses, mm -hmm. nor really to police. None of the evidence was led on, or very little of that evidence was led at this inquiry. And there's a lot of space being given to the convoy participants to talk about their perspective on events. Um, we have learned, to, to a certain extent, a little bit more about the challenge police negotiators uh, faced in dealing with those divided factions. Yeah. But I'm not sure how much more we've learned about the, the necessity of the Emergencies Act being invoked. Okay, Ian, you covered and, you, and we all lived through the, uh, the occupation of downtown Ottawa, and you've been seeing some of this, uh, this testimony from organizers and protesters. Uh, on Tatanda's point, too, we also today on Friday saw a lot of video played in sort of a counterpart to what the organizers were saying. They played a lot of video showing the kind of, un, kind of noise and disruption in the streets of Ottawa. What are you making of what you've been seeing this week? Well, you know, the, the, I think that for many Canadians, uh, or some Canadians anyway, what happened in Ottawa may seem very far away or very distant from them. What struck me in this phase of the inquiry, and I think we're a long way from the uh, sort of conclusion about whether the Emergencies Act was justified, we're a long way, or maybe not a long way, but I think when the ministers and the prime minister testifies, maybe the tone of the inquiry will change. But what strikes me is that there are lessons here, I think, for Canadians across the country. Um, in challenges police face dealing with these kinds of incidents, uh, uh, challenges managing these kinds of incidents. There are obviously concerning disclosures about allegations of police assisting protesters and such. I think there's a lot for Canadians to learn. I mean, there, there could be incidents not necessarily exactly like this, but other similar public disorder incidents in other Canadian cities. And I think that what we've heard this week and what we're hearing is very concerning. It's something for all Canadians to take note of because these kinds of incidents could occur elsewhere in Canada. Okay, Donna, last in 30 seconds, what are you watching for in the weeks to come? Obviously, things will change. We'll have a different set of uh, testimonies starting next week. 
Mm -hmm. I think that the, the inquiry is now going to turn its mind to what was going on at the Windsor Ambassador Bridge, what was going on in Toronto at Queen's Park, what was going on in Coots, Alberta. We'll hear evidence about how the solidarity actions and protests were unfolding in other areas across the country, the challenge it posed to authorities there, what they learned from the Ottawa handling or mishandling of the protest here. And uh, that'll all come uh, sort of heading into a discussion um, around what the Ontario Provincial uh, government officials thought and saw and what they did in response and whether uh, and then you know eventually I guess in a few weeks we'll get to the picture the federal picture yeah. and what was going on in the minds of cabinet ministers at the time. It all wraps up in the last week we've been told well, yeah with the federal ministers and the prime minister. Uh, listen all uh, both of you thank you very mm -hmm. much for uh, taking the time and have a good weekend. Thank you. Thanks Martin. Well, that's it for this edition of Primetime Politics. I'm Martin Stringer. Thanks for watching. And on behalf of all of us here at CPAC, have a great weekend.